welcome to episode 62 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we have um, Kay to thank Karen, to thank again, um, for our topic, first of all, which is Internet versus Real Life Bookshop. Um, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, where, where would you, where do you prefer to buy your books? How do you feel about buying books on the internet versus in real life? Um, and then in our second half, we are going to be comparing two books by A.A. A. Milne, which was Simon's suggestion, mm-hmm. um, which are Mr. Pym, Passes By, and Four Days Wonder. And we hope that some of you have read these two because Simon did mention that they were on special offer with the book people, wasn't it? And so which ties into to the first half of the episode, really, doesn't it? Yes, it does. <laughs> um, but we need to talk about what we're reading first. So, Simon, how are you coping in this hot weather and what are you reading? Well, yes, I, um, I'm knocking that today, the day of recording is the first day after the heat wave and it's, it's been quite pleasant today. Um, mm. Because I don't like the heat, although now that I live in a house with thick stone walls, it's been much nicer than my previous 1980s house, and my mm. office is air-conditioned, which in my previous job it wasn't. Well, Both lucky them, you. Oh, it makes such a difference. Although there's a lot of people there who um, come from countries that are much hotter than England, and so are always asking us to turn the aircon off, and I sort of look overgone and turn on my fan. But, um, <laughs> but yes, it's basically both those things have made my life a lot easier in the heat. Um, and I did enjoy walking into Blackwell, no, Waterstones in Oxford recently, and they had a display of Heatwave by Penelope Lively. And I've seen quite yeah. a few people reading Heatwave, actually. So it's, n- it's one I've not read, um, but I liked the canniness of that marketing. Yes, very clever. Yes. And what I'm currently reading is A Pair of Blue Eyes by Thomas Hardy. Oh, yes, I saw that you tweeted about that. Yes. <laughs> I chuckled to myself. <laughs> um, yes, what I tweeted was that the first words were Elfrida Swancourt, and it didn't bode well, but, um, because that's an absurd name. But I am actually quite enjoying it, so I'm reading it for book group. And indeed, I've read, I've completed three Hardy novels in my life, and this is the fourth one. I did, I did get halfway through Mayor of Casterbridge once. Um, and it didn't really deliberately give up. I just sort of, it just fell to one side. Um, and three of those five, no, three of those four Hardy novels I've I've been read for book groups. So book groups are just slowly forcing me to get through Hardy's canon. Um, and I'm, but I am actually enjoying it. And I loved Jude the Obscure and then I hated Return of the Native. And so I thought, I was like, I don't know how I feel about Hardy, but this one is quite early Hardy, I think. Um, and yeah, it's quite funny so far. But I also thought Judith's well, girl was quite funny, and that's probably not a popular opinion. So. Well, I've read quite a few Hardys in my time. I I had to um, read which one was it? Far from the Madding Crowd for my GCSE, oh, okay. which I do feel like I drew the short straw there. <laughs> uh, I remember suffering through that because it wasn't particularly inspiring for a child of my age. I remember loving Tessa the Durbervilles and wanting to throw it across the room. I was so frustrated. Um, <laughs> Judy of Scores is harrowing, but good at the same time. I don't think I've read any others. It's not an author. I mean, as someone who's obsessed with Victorians, um, though, I mean, he's technically Victorian and Edwardian, I suppose. Um, I he is, although he didn't write any novels in the Edwardian period. He just wrote poetry no. in the Edwardian period, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah. Some beautiful poetry, actually. Um, but I, yeah, he just is never someone who's appealed massively to me. I don't know what it is. 
Well, he's, he's basically the only novelist my dad likes. Okay. <laughs> um, he is somewhat, somewhat bizarrely, but um, I don't know. I just I like him when he has his sort of more f- amusing moments, and there and I think all the books have had some amusing moments, even though they, the harrowing bits are the bits that people tend to remember. But what I but when he expects us to take romances deathly seriously when they've you know, known each other for half a minute. Um, <laughs> and then Eustacia Vi in The Return of the Native is, is possibly the most annoying character I've ever come across in literature. <laughs> so, uh, and not deliberately, as far as I can tell. Like, an annoying character who's meant to be annoying is can be quite funny, but we, I think we're supposed to care deeply what Eustacia Vi thinks, and I just wanted her to, well, fall off a cliff or something. <laughs> um Sorry, Return of the Native fans. But but this one's going all right. It's, it's not the sort of book that I should probably be trying to get through very quickly for book group, but but never mind. Well, you're doing your duty, which I is am. admirable. <laughs> England well expects. Yeah. Um, and what are you reading? Um, well, actually, I'm, I'm sort of in between a book at the moment because I've just literally finished Four Days Wonder for, the, for us tonight. Oh, yes. Um, last night I finished In a Summer Season by Elizabeth Taylor, hmm. which I didn't enjoy, actually. Oh, really? The I've not first, read that one. It's the first Elizabeth Taylor I haven't enjoyed. Oh, and what was, what was unenjoyable, unenjoyable about it? It felt kind of very plotless. Hmm. And I just didn't really get the point of it, and I didn't warm to any of the characters, and I didn't really believe in the relationships. It just didn't work for me. Maybe I just wasn't in the right mood for it, but it was, um, yeah, it just wasn't what I had expected or come to expect from Elizabeth Taylor, so that's a bit of a, a shame, really. And I'm just about, I'm on my last chapter of Ons and Rebels by Jessica Mitford. Yeah. Um, which I've had on my shelf for years and years, and then I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to read that. And then I had a lovely bit of book serendipity the other week when I, when I was on holiday in Scotland, I uh, found in the bookcase in the Airbnb place I was staying in a Dorothy L. Sayers book called Five Red Herrings, which is set in the, the place where I was staying in Scotland. Hmm. And I thought, how wonderful, I'll give it a read. And then I didn't actually manage to finish the book. And because I'm a very good person, I did not steal the book. <laughs> um, I put it back on the shelf. Um, I mean, that seems to be just basic. It's not maybe very good, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I mean. The temptation is there. Yeah. Because I thought, who's ever going to read this? Okay. And then um, I looked online for it, and it was quite expensive. And I thought, oh, well, you know, never mind. I'm sure I'll find it somewhere. And then a couple of days after I got back from Scotland, I went to meet a friend for dinner in King's Cross, and she said to me, oh, we must go down to the book barge. There's this um, boat on the on the canal by King's Cross Station that sells secondhand books. And if anyone is in the area, you must go down and have a look. Um, and it's absolutely wonderful. It's like a proper boat that you go down into, and it's got all different rooms with different types of books in. And then it also has um, books on the, on, the, on the, I don't know what you call it. It's not a key, is it? On the bank of the canal. Sure. Um, and so I walked into the to the book barge. I said to my friend, oh, you don't mind if I just have a quick look? Um, she knows <laughs> what I'm like, so she was like, well, it won't be quick, but sure. Um, <laughs> and then the very first book that I saw in front of me was a beautiful 1940s edition of Five Red Herrings. Oh, so lovely. I thought, well, I shall buy that from the nice man. So I did. And I'm. that was a very long story to say um, that I feel like I'm meant to read this book. Therefore, I picked it up, and that's the book I'm going to read next. 
And I've never read Dorothy L. Sayers before, so it's going to be my my opportunity to see what she's like. Because I know you like her, but... Well, I don't, actually. Oh, you don't? I thought uh, you told me to read her before, Gordy Knight or something. Oh, no. Well, I might have said to read it so we could talk about it, because I hate yeah. it. <laughs> but, yeah. but that's largely because, after you say if I, I find Lord Peter Whimsy the second most annoying character in fiction. Ah. But that is not a popular opinion, and I suspect you'll love it. But I'd be intrigued to hear more when you, when you have read it. You should soon find out. Yeah. Um, great. I should just say uh, to listeners, uh, apologies if you're getting some road noise from Rachel during that, and maybe in the future, or from Rachel's sound, because it's still very hot, particularly in London, so the window is open. And I'm yeah, sure you're so it's f- either that or the, the sound of the aircraft engine that is my fan. So um, <laughs> I'm afraid it had to be one or the other, because this flat is like a greenhouse. I am yeah. not like Simon in a nice stone-built flat mine is basically just glass <laughs> yeah yes um i must go to the book barge i had not realized so is it permanently there now well i believe so it looked quite permanent to me but i didn't ask the man but according to my friend who works at king's cross it's been there a very long time so okay maybe it's I not did. the same book barge as the one i thought but... um, yeah, i mean but... it didn't it looked like it was very much there to stay but i i did get a I think if I, I think he did give me a bookmark with it on, so I could look it up. I'm not sure. He sounded like he was from London, so. Yeah, because the one I was thinking of is run by a woman whose name I could Sarah or something, I think, and they so sell just new books. So I think that must be a different one. Yeah, and it's, it was all second-hand books. Ooh, well, next time in King's Cross, I will have to pay a visit myself. Yes, you shall, and then you can come and stay with me. Perfect. Right, right, right. Oh my yeah. gosh, what fun we'll have! What fun we will have. <laughs> Drag us away. Um, so, yes, thank you, Karen, for, as as always, um, being better at coming up with topics than we are <laughs> and, and picking this first one. Um, and, in fact, whilst talking in the introduction and in our little bit there, we have come up with, given examples both of buying things in shops and buying things online. So, yes. clearly, we, we do both. Yes. Um but, well, before we say which you prefer, do you think you know approximately how much, what sort of percentage you do of each? Um, well, actually, I mean, I have in the last couple of years made a concerted effort to buy more books in person in, in actual bookshops. Um, and I am spoiled for choice, obviously, living in London. Mm. I work in the centre of London, so I walk past bookshops all the time of both the, the new book variety and, and second-hand book variety. Um, and I do find often when it's a new book that I want to buy, the price difference between the buying it in the bookshop and buying it on, on Amazon or another online retailer isn't sufficiently massive enough for me to think, oh, I'll, I'll get it online. Mm. So I do tend to, to just buy it in the shop as much as I can. But sometimes if it's a book, like, for example, I've needed to get books for university and things, and often they're quite obscure and I haven't been able to find them in the bookshop. Um, so I've had to go online to get them. So I do my best to buy stuff online only if I if I really, really need to. Like, I can't find it anywhere else, so I'd have to order it in and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because I have the um, the next day delivery, it's, it's just, like, it's more convenient for me because I can just get it straight away rather than having to wait a week, if you see what I mean. Yeah, fair enough, yes. But, I mean, I do buy a lot of my books 
secondhand. I mean, the majority of the books I buy will be secondhand books. Um, even if it's a modern book, I'll, I'll try and get it secondhand if I can. Um, and that will be from either a secondhand bookshop or a charity bookshop. So I would probably say 80% of the books I buy are used and 20% new. Yeah, and um, I guess that's still a, the ones you buy used, I guess, are a mix of... Do you, I mean, I assume you buy used online as well? Uh, not so much, no, Oh, actually. really? Okay. No, I prefer not to because especially, I mean, if I'm... If I can see, sometimes I find that they don't show you a picture or like they'll say this picture is for illustrative purposes only. And if I'm particularly looking for a specific edition of a book or I want a particular dust jacket or I want to make sure it's got a dust jacket on it, I don't always trust buying online okay. if I can't see what it is. I prefer to get it in the shop. But um, I do, yeah, I do buy used books online, but I wouldn't normally buy those from Amazon. I would normally buy them from a books or ebay where i can actually see what the book is that i'm buying so yes i think it's probably more than 99 percent of the books i buy are used um because i probably only buy about one or two new books a year for myself obviously for presents and things mm. um so it's, yeah, it's very rare that i will buy an, a new book um and it has to be sort of an impulse really or something that I'd, yeah i just can't wait to read and it's only just come out like a new biography usually it's not often a new fiction that will do that yeah um, but i do buy quite a lot of um used books that are sec that are um, online um and, and that's largely i think the sort of books um i guess like when i was buying up aml's books early on or, or any author where their, their novels or um aren't likely to be that available in every bookshop you go into i will just accumulate those online if i want to buy them but i guess the difference is if i'm buying something online obviously i know what i want mm. i don't browse online mm. um, i don't really think you could very easily browse online so no. it tends, yeah it tends to be that i would just put in um the details i want to buy the cheapest copy that i can <laughs> um i do often buy from amazon marketplace uh and okay. i have conflicted feelings about that which we can come on to but uh, and if I am buying on Amazon Marketplace, I, whilst I'll probably get one of the cheaper books, I try to buy some, from someone who doesn't have many ratings yet, because then I think they're probably just an individual who will be very excited that someone's bought their book. Yes. As opposed to, like, you know, one of, there's a lot, you know, one of these enormous, awesome books or whatever companies that have hundreds of thousands of books in their inventory online and are based in a warehouse somewhere. Yeah. Um, but I do prefer, I think, or um, going into secondhand bookshops and it's much more fun just to look through the shelves and be like, oh, what will I find? And then sometimes, like you did, you, you'll find something really exciting uh, that you... Mm -hmm. I mean, you were looking for it in a way, I guess, but yes. you had, had no guarantee it would be there. Um, and often it's just fun to find things serendipitously, either books you vaguely knew you wanted or books you never heard of. And, that's, um, and I don't really do that in new bookshops. I don't think I ever just go to look through the three-for-two tables and see what I want. Mm. Do you do you do that? Um, not really. I mean, I like to go into the bookshop and and just sort of have a look around. Sometimes I just like being in a bookshop. Yes, I definitely do that. <laughs> um, it's just nice for the atmosphere, and I like listening into what people are saying, and I love it when people are recommending things to each other. And and normally I walk past and think, oh, that book's rubbish or something. Don't like that. <laughs> um, and then sometimes I like to intervene, especially when someone's asking a book, like a, someone, 
uh, oh have you do you know what this book is and the per and the person will say oh no i don't know and then i'll be like it's this um I, I, I once did that when someone was like saying, do you have any books by the guy who wrote As I Lay Dying? And the oh. guy on the counter said, I don't know who it is. And I lent him with Samuel Faulkner and then realised, of course, his first name is not Samuel. Oh, and so I had sort of ruined my moment of, of, of being a helpful Sorry. person. But, but, you know, you, at least you've got the last name right. It turns so. out they didn't have anything by him. But, you know, some, at least they can know what to look for in the next shop, I guess. Well, it's <laughs> so, or, almost, at least. Yeah. And I do enjoy browsing in bookshops. And I think... Uh, it's often the place where when you were browsing you come across things that you would you didn't know existed or like you didn't know an author had just had a new book come out um or you might see a book that you have really enjoyed on a display with other similar books and you think oh you know that's if that's similar to that I might give that a try and I've I've, I've noticed really in the last three or four years that the book chains like Waterstones and Foils. Foils isn't, is a, I sort of technically a chain, but it's a bit more independent mm-hmm. than many of them. They've really kind of cottoned on to this um, <laughs> feeling that people want to have more of an engagement with um, the books that they're buying. They want to feel that the people who work in the shop are book people and, mm-hmm. and give personal recommendations and and i think they're doing a better job of of doing that like having displays but oh this is what our staff recommend or these books are you know to do with a particular season um or you know this is we're celebrating black history month for example and we're going to have mm. a display of, of books um relevant to that or it's you know it's the centenary of this and we're going to give you some books about that and I think they're they're making the the big chains are making more of an effort to to be a little bit more personalised. And certainly in London, in the bookshops that I go to, that they've also got displays books about London. Mm. Uh, you know, and when I've I've gone to books in other parts of the country, they'll have local books guides for um, stories about people, books written by people from that area, stories about that area, etc. So I think it's a much more personalized experience and i do think that there was a real kickback against chains a few years ago and i think they have listened and they've they've tried to be a bit more personal i mean i know that it's a shame that there aren't as many independent bookshops these days but i think it's part of a wider trend away from the high street with people shopping more online and and it is difficult for independent bookshops to make a living and i don't necessarily think it's anybody's fault i think it's just a change in the way that people shop in general and those bigger bookshops are able to have more variety of books like i i I prefer to shop in independent bookshops where i can but often i just find that they don't have the books that i want yeah and going back to what you're saying about bookshops the chains sort of getting more personalized waterstones have even gone down to changing their name in various places i don't know if you've seen this and they got in a bit of trouble for it occasionally and i don't know if it's either if they've bought out a bookshop that originally had that name so say one in this is a made-up example but in Truro they might keep the Truro bookshop rather than calling it Waterstones so it looks like it's an independent even though it's not um yes no that's that that's a strat they've got one in Blackheath and um which I go to quite a lot which is in London and I saw it and I thought oh there wasn't a bookshop there before and I said I said to my um, friend who I was with how great that uh, someone's opened up a bookshop here 
And then I looked closer and I was like, hang on a minute, this looks like water stains. And it's a very tiny print <laughs> of the window. It says that it's a water stains. But their argument is they, they didn't take over existing bookshops. Their argument is in areas like Blackheath, which is a bit, it's like the Hampstead of South London, um, where people would be resistant towards chains. They've disguised the fact that it's them. And that's what people didn't like about it, because it is incredibly difficult to tell that it's water stains. They don't advertise it. And part of me does think that's fine. I quite like that they um, are giving that atmosphere because, I mean, they're not being completely dishonest, I guess. Uh, um, and I don't really think it matters in some ways uh, if, it, if it is giving that experience and if it does have that local expertise and the local specialities, then that's better than it just being a, a faceless brand. Yeah. Um, it depends whether what your issues are with, you know, corporation tax and all that sort of thing, I guess. But, um but I, yeah, I, I do try and buy a book if I go in, into an independent bookshop, a new book, and that's probably when I do buy my new books mm. because I, I know that their profit margins are, are smaller than others and they probably, you know, the sale of a book makes a lot more difference to them than it would to Waterstones. Yeah. Um, but Oxford somehow doesn't have any independent bookshops, which is absurd. I mean, that just seems bizarre to yeah. me. I know it's Oxford, come on, people. So, yeah. And there were, a, there were there were quite a few second-hand bookshops when I moved here in, 20, no, in 2004, um, all of which have closed down now, That's which is tragedy. really sad. So we still have a Blackwells and a Waterstones, um, which is lovely. But, um, but yes, it is bizarre that Oxford can't support an independent new I or second-hand bookshop. I mean, of all the bookshop. cities in the country... I know, yeah. I mean, I guess it, the colleges own most of the most of the buildings, and they love charging a lot of rent for them. But um, yes, well, that's another discussion, isn't it? Well, quite yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love a day out for to a second-hand bookshop. There's a few in rural Oxfordshire, or you know, in the towns around Oxfordshire, that mm. there are bookshops. There's a very good one in Wantage, um, and uh, yeah, a day out to a to a bookshop is wonderful you don't know what you're going to find and i'm planning a trip to astley book Always farm which i've not been to before which is i think in warwickshire um oh, lovely. yes um the idea of a book farm it sounds very intriguing <laughs> i um, would love to go yeah well come along why not <laughs> maybe i shall maybe you will i think it's about when you're moving house um. but <laughs> come to that and come with us <laughs> oh dear um so we yes we have we have skirted around the Amazon issue, yes. But uh, as someone who used to work for a publishing house, I have been taught to hate Amazon. <laughs> so um, I, I think there's a lot of people who do have issues with Amazon, uh, largely around the fact that they are putting. I know you said it's no one's fault that other people got out of business, but the way that they do deals with publishers is give them, it does give them a price advantage that other people can't match. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I was actually, I was thinking about this um, before we were doing this, and I thought this is a point that's, that's going to come up, is is the fact that, obviously, they they push prices down, um, which reduces massively. I was reading an article, I think Philip Pullman wrote an article about it the other day, um, talking about how authors are basically living on the breadline because of the, the, the prices that Amazon and other online retailers, I think, in the US um, are are negotiating with publishers and, and basically they're forcing them to sell books for like two pounds each or something, which makes the the royalties that the authors are getting practically nothing. Yeah, I mean, and then also the issues that they don't pay tax. They yes. have very bad working conditions. Yes. Um, 
I know you have a friend who used to work for Amazon. I um, do. I don't know if there are any she... horror stories they'd be willing to share or if they could be inappropriate. I don't know. No, well, she yeah. she didn't work for that, that side of the business, I don't think. So, um, well, she always had very, they were very good employees, apparently. So, okay. um, to her, but I mean, she earned quite a lot of money and was quite high up. So I think it's probably a different experience to someone working in the warehouse. Yes, I'm sure it is. So was, I can't remember where I read the article, but yes, there was sort of a in-depth piece I read a while ago about you know, how terrible they were with not allowing toilet breaks, all that sort of thing. Mm. No, I read um, the same. Yes, and I, th- I think I, it is very they have probably the most simple buying uh, process online it is in the marketplace office all these things i think i mean there's a whole issue about as consumers how much we should be aware of these things and should take them into account but also they just bought up so much because used to think i'll go to book depository or i'll go to abe books but they own both of those now Mm. um they might own a libris i don't know but they, they they certainly bought up a lot of the smaller competitors over the years which have kept their individual face and it always feels better to go to AV books, but mm. you know, it is an Amazon product now. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. you know, I think though, I mean, I think it's right for us to question these things. And, and I think, you know, I understand people's outrage at the fact that, you know, prices are being driven down and people aren't paying taxes and, and, and what have you. But I think, at the end of the day, the reason this is happening is is because we as consumers ha- demand those prices, um, and people have lost the the true value of of things, and they they don't want to pay more than five pounds for a book. It's like when people it's the same with farmers and milk. People don't want mm-hmm. to pay more than a pound for a pint of milk, so they're not going to. So it forces the prices down, and and people have, have become used to to books being um, a cheap and affordable item and if if you charge somebody the true cost of what a book was people wouldn't buy them um, I mean I, I remember when I first moved to America and the price of paperbacks there shocked me I thought I cannot believe books are so expensive here mm-hmm. because I was used to being able to pay five pounds for a paperback in America it's more like fifteen dollars mm-hmm. which even when you take into consideration the exchange rate is is a lot of money and Actually, the reality is $15 shouldn't be a lot of money for a book. That should be what a book is worth. It's going to give me hours of pleasure. I'm going to keep it forever. But in my head, I was thinking, I don't want to pay that much for it. I can get it cheaper elsewhere. And and I don't know how we've ended up in a, in a place where we think it's acceptable to spend £3.50 on a yeah. birthday card. <laughs> Which, I mean, that birthday cards exactly. are Exactly. Or, or the yeah. same for a coffee. But I, I yeah, wouldn't yeah. spend... Um, five. I'll spend five pounds, or well, I'll spend ten pounds on lunch, but I won't spend ten pounds on a book. I mean, which would last the rest of your life? Yeah, exactly. So somewhere along the way, we have allowed. I mean, I, I say we collectively. I'm sure there are plenty of people listening saying, "Well, I'm not that like that," but I, I think I do speak for a sizable majority of people our mm, age, certainly, mm. who who have come to see, um, you know, everything we buy as kind of always searching for for the cheapest price i mean look at uh, when you think of clothing the the shop that sells the most clothes in this country is primark Mm. because it's cheap and people want stuff that's cheap and if the consumers are asking that then the the companies have to provide it and i think it's all very well painting amazon as being the big bad wolf here he's you know 
devouring up all the other companies and preventing it, having a monopoly and not paying its taxes and such. But I think we do have to look at ourselves yeah, and think, it, you know, yeah. yeah, we've we've created this monster in many ways because we've asked for it, we demanded it, and Amazon is basically feeding the appetite that is generated by what consumers want and consumers also want convenience you know amazon offers i mean at christmas time i do my best to go to lots of places and buy different things but the reality is i'm busy and i don't have a lot of time and i've it's so easy for me to go on amazon and i can get everything i need in one go and get it all sent to my door and Certainly for people like my sister, for example, she lives in a village in the middle of nowhere and her nearest place to go shopping is a 20 minute drive away. And when she gets there, there's hardly any shops there that will sell things that she needs. There is an independent bookshop. But if it doesn't have the books that she wants, where else is she going to go to get it from? You know, people like that who don't have access to shops. It's all very well for people who live in cities. But if you don't, then online is where you're going to go. Yeah. And I think that's the reality. I mean, people do their supermarket shops online. People do, and people want to do everything online. They want to be able to do it at work. They don't want to have to spend time trawling around shops finding stuff. Speaking of doing things online, an interesting alternative that I recently saw highlighted by my friend Tom, who runs a blog called um, ooh, Indie Lit Blog, Indie Fic Lit, something like that. I'll put a link in the blog post. Uh, sorry, Tom. Um, he <laughs> started a conversation with a, a publisher online about um, buying books directly from the publisher's website. And they had a really in interesting point that even if they're selling a book to a bookshop, to not even looking at Amazon's you know, cut, cuts and things, there's obviously massive overheads for the bookshop. Whereas if you buy it from the publisher, obviously there's the overheads of paying the author and paying the printer and whatever. But the cut that they get is much higher. The cut the author then gets is much higher because a lot of authors pay is based on percentage of what the publisher gets. Right. Um, and the price is often very similar for the buyer, but compared to a bookshop, maybe not compared to Amazon, but yes, it's, mm. it's, it'll be the same price they'd pay in the shop. Um, so that was something I never really considered for. I don't think I've ever bought something directly from a publisher except, you know, Persephone and maybe slightly Foxed. No, um, yeah, I mean, I've bought Persephone books, but I've, I've never thought of doing that. And I suppose you know, we can be more creative about where we look for things. And it's it's not necessarily about the price. It's about um, wanting to buy it from the people who it's going to matter to the most, if you see what I mean. Um, and particularly if you're doing it with a small publisher, then it's mm. quite possible that you could then email saying, I'd like to buy this, what else would you recommend? And you can get a much more personalised Person service myself, from people yeah. who actually know what they're talking about. Yeah, and I, I, I do try to do that as, as much as, as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing is as well, I mean, something to think about is this is quite a middle-class debate that we have about, you know, the mm -hmm. ethics of online shopping and such. We're fortunate in that we can afford to buy books new um, mm -hmm. and we can afford to shop around and all those sorts of things. There are a lot of people who don't have a lot of money and the reality is places like Amazon that allow people on a very limited income to be able to buy a book for three ninety nine and enjoy it rather than having to not be able to buy books because they're £15 um, in a bookshop. I think, you know, there are, I think it's, it's in many ways great that Amazon has enabled people to be able to buy books cheaply. Um, 
and have access to something that perhaps previously they wouldn't have been able to because for a lot of people, £10, £15, £20 sometimes for a new book is completely un- unaffordable. Yes, um, I've certainly been up at that point in my yeah, life I mean, where it was not possible. Yeah, so have I. And, you know, rather than buying it used, because obviously if you buy a book used, the, the author's not getting anything at all. Mm-hmm. If you buy it, new but discounted the author is going to still get get something but i mean i'm not excusing amazon i don't think that their ethics as a company are necessarily right however they're not the only ones in that position um and you know i don't really want to get into all of that because i feel like in this at the moment you can't buy from anywhere without enabling some kind of oppression or or something you know no company seems to be innocent of wrongdoing and i find it quite difficult to do anything without feeling guilty about it these days um <laughs> and i'm sure i should say i'm sure there are lots of people listening who are saying what about the library and of course that is yes. a great resource and it's you know separate to this conversation we're certainly not saying you should never borrow books in, no. in the library of course if you certainly in england i don't know if this is true in other countries if you borrow a book then the author does get a small amount um obviously yes, how many people borrow, um, which is actually something that um the novelist who wrote Hackenfeller's a Bridget, Bro- Bridget Brophy was was a lead person in getting the library agreement, whatever it's called, um, oh. signed to get authors' contributions from libraries. In the, I think in the seventies. Little fun fact. Well, as they should. And you mm. know, libraries are absolutely. I use the library all the time, and I, I'm sure people on a limited income um, use libraries all the time as well. But unfortunately, um, as we've seen in the press, lots of libraries are getting closed. Yes. And um, particularly, again, if you live in a rural area, getting to the library or having access to a library is not always easy. Um, and so the convenience of having books cheaply delivered to your door is something that is, for many people, a lifeline. And as much as we can hand ring about it and say, isn't it terrible and all these people aren't getting money and all the rest of it, I think we also do have to look at the flip side and think who benefits from it. And enabling people to have access to to literature, I think, is really important. And I think we do also have to recognise the fact that our world is increasingly becoming internet-based and there are certain jobs and certain types of organizations that are eventually going to become obsolete because of that and that's just the reality of, of progress unfortunately some people do get left behind so it's obviously a complex and thorny issue mm. thank you for suggesting it karen but um we've come to our teal books decision making moment rachel yeah, oh dear. On- online or in person what are you going to uh... choose well, I think online has many benefits, as I've said. I mean, I like the fact that I can I can find books that perhaps I wouldn't have been able to come across uh, in a in a real shop. But I think for me, the experience of being... I mean, I'm lucky in that I live in a big city and I have access to lots of bookshops, and I love the experience of being in a bookshop, so I would choose real. Yes, and I, I agree. I, I, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to give up either, but um, particularly just going to a second-hand bookshop, a nice big second-hand bookshop, and browsing and seeing what's there is, is basically my favourite thing to do in the world. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> that is what I would ultimately pick if I did have to pick one. Great. Wow. Interested Lovely. to hear people's thoughts on that. Yes, definitely. Um, and hopefully you don't think of us now as part of the corrupt capitalist machine. um so and the second half of this episode we are looking at one of my favorite authors which i'm very excited about um a.m whose books have recently been 
or some of his books have recently been reprinted. I don't actually know who's reprinted them. Who, who's done those editions? Um, it's the, the by Bello, which is an imprint of Pam Macmillan. Oh, yes. Sort of, I think they're technically print on demand, um, but they are on available. They're in print, you know. Yes, they've done lots of um, authors that I like, coincidentally or otherwise, don't know. But, um, and I think Did you have a it. hand in this, Simon? Oh, so when they started doing Edith Olivier, I think this must be someone who reads my blog. <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, Lizzie, I, who, who I don't know if she's still there, but certainly was at one point. Um, I know we have interacted, but I don't know how influential I was, but it, just, it did feel extremely serendipitous. Do you know what? We're going to just believe that you were. I'm a huge deal, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, but yes, we are looking at two of his uh, novels. He didn't write very many novels, but Mr. Pym Passes By and Four Days Wonder. Uh, Rachel, pick one that you'd like to introduce us to, please. Oh, gosh. Um, I'll go for Four Days Wonder. Great. Do you want to kick off? Okay, yeah. So Four Days Wonder is a... A pastiche of a of a detective novel, a golden age detective novel, um, and it's the story of Jenny Windle, who um, she loves detective fiction, and to her shock, she stumbles across a crime scene when she goes back to a house that she used to live in as a child. She lets herself in with an old key. It's being let to somebody else at the time, who's thankfully not in. And uh, coincidentally, her aunt, who happens to be a famous actress, has also had the same idea of returning <laughs> to her childhood home that day. Um, she doesn't know that it's been let out. She's been away for a long time. And Jenny comes across her dead, uh, her aunt's dead body on the floor of um, the living room. And um, it's clear that she's fallen over and, and hit her head against a brass doorstop. Of, of all the, of all the chances in the world. <laughs> and, and it's killed her. And Jenny, um, kind of panics and, and cleans the, the, the doorstop and puts it back on the shelf. And then as, as she's doing this, she hears the, the owners of the house come in. So realizing she's, looks like she's murdered her aunt, she jumps out the window and runs away. And then, um, we have the hilarious situation of Jenny being on the run. Um, getting into all sorts of difficulties by being on the run. Her best friend Nancy helps her out and um, she she meets uh, a man who is going to help her who's connected to Nancy's employer. It all gets very complicated. Um, and basically everyone will think that, that Jenny is, has been kidnapped and she it's, it's only over the course of four days but there's a lot that happens in those four days. Um, the, it's about the trying to solve the the murder the police trying to solve the murder jenny trying to keep hidden and then eventually everyone having to work out what's really happened so that's the story thank you very much and before i move on i just want to read the first line because i think it's wonderful um of four days wonder which is when on a fine june morning not so long ago jenny windle let herself in with her latchkey at auburn lodge and humming dreamily to herself drifted, drifted upstairs to the drawing room she was surprised to see the body of her aunt jane lying on a rug by the open door so mr pym passes by um also published as mr pym uh, it was originally a play called mr pym passes by it was late, later novelized as Mr. Pym, then reprinted as Mr. Pym passes by. <laughs> Very confusing. But it's about um, a family, George and his uh, his wife, Olivia. Uh, George is sort of an old, old-fashioned old country 
gent type who's married fairly late in life to Olivia, who has had a bit of a troubled past, but is now just loved by everyone and a wonderful wife and sort of mother figure to George's niece, Dinah, who also lives there. As the novel opens, Dinah has fallen in love with um, a local man whose name I can't... Um, Brian, who is... Uh, <laughs> Um, who is a painter, a, a sort of very newfangled painter uh, with you know, triangular sheaf is the, is the problem that George has, who doesn't think he's at all suitable for Dinah and does not want them to get married, which is their intention. Um, Olivia's only intention is to hang up the new orange and black curtains that she's designed, which again he thinks are not suitable because they are not in the modern way, which is his surname. Mr. Pym does indeed pass by, but not much more than that, at least at first. He ambles past because he wants to speak to George to get an introduction to someone else. Um, and only sees Dinah, who mentions Olivia's first husband, Telworthy, who was a ne'er-do-well who died. <laughs> um, Mr. Pym comes back uh, to, to see George and Olivia and um, happens to mention that he saw Telworthy on a boat not that long ago. Uh, which throws Olivia and George into the realisation that they are committing bigamy. And, and then the novel looks at what they're going to do about that. Um, and yes, basically it's a sort of um, what does society think versus what what should a man who's in love do, in Olivia's opinion, etc. It's sort of a comedy of manners, I guess. Yeah. Um, I read both of them around 2002-2003. I have reread Mr. Pim Passes By since then. Um, and indeed, readers of Stuck in a Book will be, will be familiar with my copy because it is part of the hatchet that I have on top of the blog. Oh, yeah. I think that's going to be a very have, lovely have dust jacket. Have you seen the play by any chance? I haven't yet. So there is, it is, it, um, there is a version available on YouTube that I was meaning to watch for a record and have not managed. I think it's an amateur dramatics version. Have you, did you watch that? I didn't. I haven't had a chance. I have to catch up with that. I'd love to see it on stage. I think it'd be wonderful to see it on stage, particularly mm. after we saw the Dover Road a couple of years ago. Yeah, and, and that's really it would, good. Yeah, I was hoping it would usher in a new season of all of Amon's plays being done, but yeah, yet to happen. But, um, you never know. Well, someone <laughs> might listen to this podcast, and then there we are. There we go. And the novel, indeed, is very similar to the play in outline. Um, obviously, it's much more fleshed out than the play. Um. And you've just read them both for this first time. I have, right? yeah. So I'm a, I'm a novice of A.A. Milne. I mean, I have to say, even as a child, I wasn't um, a reader of, of Winnie the Pooh or anything like that. So this really is my first wow. foray yeah. into into Milne, who I've only known as a as a children's author. And actually, I was reading it. Um, I was staying with my parents over the weekend, and I was reading it. My mum said, "Oh, doesn't he?" I thought he just. Why are you reading a children's book? I was like, well, I'm not <laughs> mum, actually, as it happens. Um, so I did, really didn't know what to expect, actually. I mean, obviously, I'd seen uh, the play with you, so I, yes. I did think about it. It would probably be sort of light-hearted fun, but I, I didn't know whether I would like it or not. So I was interested to see how I would feel. And how did you feel about Amen in general? I was pleasantly surprised. Um, he's very much of his time. Reminded me a little bit, actually, of of R.C. Sheriff, but a little bit more light-hearted. Hmm, that's fair, yes. yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I really enjoy his writing style. I think he's very funny. Yes. Uh, very uh, good. I love his kind of 
throwaway lines and his observations about people is very witty. Um, Four Days Wonder in particular I found very funny. And his, his character, Archibald Fenton, is, is um, a character who's a famous author. And he's very, um, very aware of his own importance and, and of his own brilliance, even though he's not that good. Um, <laughs> and he has a wife who's got and, and six children. And because she's had six children, his wife has become rather overweight and he no longer finds her attractive. And he keeps conveniently forgetting that he has a wife. Um, <laughs> and he's very funny. Um, I really enjoyed that. And I just loved the whole tongue-in-cheek nature of the book he really sends up the detective genre really well um and the characters that he builds are funny and endearing without being too cliched or cloying um yeah i certainly enjoyed it all the detective stuff a lot more now than i did the first time and i didn't really remember a lot about this book at all in oh. to the extent that i thought it was a male protagonist until i started reading reviews of it when it was <laughs> reprinted because a couple a couple of bloggers have been reading it um but yes there are a lot of references or you know traits that i wouldn't because i think at that point i'd only read agatha christie and not that many of them i hadn't read any other golden age detective writers and then even things like jane Aunt Jane being sort of looked down upon because she knew the Sitwells. That would have meant nothing to me in 2002, whereas now, you know, it's like, oh, very funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I enjoyed a lot how um, he plays on, yeah, the different tropes of the detective thing from the different suspicions that fall on people or the mad way that people react to things or, yeah, all the, all the sorts of um, police procedural things going slightly awry. Um, and he, of course, he wrote a detective novel himself, The Red House Mystery. Yes, which has yeah. been reprinted, hasn't it? It has a few times, actually. That was before before this lot, but it was his only book that had received a lot of attention, I guess. And it was extremely successful in back in the day. I think it's, it suffers a little from being published rather earlier than most detective novels of that period, in that the plot is a bit flimsy. Right. But the same sort of really enjoyable writing style. Ooh. Yeah. Um, what did you make of Jenny as a as a character then? I think she's very endearing, very funny. Um, I I liked her innocence. I liked how she um, is quite inventive and in how she uses her knowledge of detective fiction to uh, to decide help her decide what she should do. And she's she's quite. I mean, I I was worried she was going to be quite like Dinah in. Um, Mr. Pym passes by in being quite, uh, I found Dinah quite thinly drawn and quite stereotyped, mm. stereotypical, but um, actually I found Jenny much more well-rounded and I enjoyed the fact that she's she's quite independent and she knows what she wants to do and she doesn't rely, I mean she does um, end up in a relationship um, with Derek Fenton who is Archibald's brother who she happens across when she's hiking across Tunbridge, uh, the countryside outside Tunbridge Wells um, but she she's managed to get there on her own. She's used her initiative, and, and she's actually quite brave to go off by herself and sleep in a haystack and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I enjoyed her. I found her quite feisty and, and interesting, and I really liked her best friend Nancy as well. She's really fun. Yeah, I, I really liked um, basically all of them. But yes, Derek and Jenny I really liked as a couple as well. I thought they were very charming but also quite witty yeah. um, and... Um, I do like Dinah and Brian, but they are, but their conversations are a bit cloying at times yeah. and a bit, um, I don't know how much I bought 
Well, I mean, I did buy their romance, I guess. They said yeah, it didn't seem wildly unrealistic, but perhaps a little, um, I don't know, not that entertaining to read about people no. just being in love. And, and that's one of the parts of the book that I thought was probably better on stage because it was obviously much less of it, <laughs> which, yeah. which tells you only really need to know that they're, that they're definitely in love. You don't need to hear their sort of sweet nothing conversation. Yes. Um, I so did to, find them a bit annoying. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, to move over to uh, Mr. Finn Passes By um, and characters, in fact, what, I think a lot of it depends on what you think of Olivia and whether mm. or not you think she is this wonderful paragon. And, the, and particularly in Amon's early plays, he has a lot of women who are wonderful paragons, but who, um, in, in not intending to be in a particularly annoying way, often they're supposed to be lovable and witty and all that sort of thing. And I think Olivia is for that much, but I don't know if, what did you think? Well, yeah, I mean, she's perfectly nice and everything, but I, I didn't, just didn't believe that she would have married George. Yes, that was interesting, wasn't it? Because I think there's a bit, because her, her first husband was um, a forger and I think violent, I think it's hinted at. Um, and there was a bit I liked where, because I was thinking that, and there's, yeah, a bit where um, she says when she, she remembers when she first met him, how nice it was to meet someone who divides actions into good and bad and and however they divide them try to follow the good and that's the important thing to her then to he's pretty humorless he can't be that entertaining to be around but he i think it was that just um meeting someone who had a moral code yeah. was all she really wanted at that point yeah i mean i got that part and i was like okay fair enough she, she's had a bad experience and um she wants somebody, she wants to be in safe hands, basically. But I thought, well, I mean, if she's as beautiful and wonderful and amazing as, as AML says she is, then surely she must have had loads of people falling at her feet. And there must have been someone who was good and more interesting than George. She's just boring and annoying. Yeah. Yes, he is uh, annoying, yes. <laughs> um, and his reaction to the uh, realisation of bigamy is basically very unsatisfactory for her and possibly for the reader um but he's just worries about the fact that he's been living in sin and worries about what the society would say if they found out but has a real moral response to it as well as it's not just a sort of embarrassment or worrying about society he does only think oh gosh i've been doing the wrong thing for a long time yeah. i thought that was quite in nuanced that he wasn't just a sort of, you know, evil figure who only cares about getting on in the world or something. He, he's in a real moral quandary, I guess. Yeah, and I, I liked that. I liked the fact that he had that opportunity to see the error of his ways and realise that actually he was a terrible stick in the mud and he needed to let go a little bit um, yeah. and not worry so much about what other people thought of him, etc., etc. So that, that was nice that the story got to that point. And I did think... But I mean, I just thought Mr. Pym was ridiculous as well. I just thought, how silly. Oh, I love Mr. Pym. No, yes. it drove me mad. I just, how, how can someone be so ridiculously forgetful? Um, so he's extremely absent-minded um, and, yeah, to the point where he doesn't really know anyone he's seeing or has seen or doesn't remember anything, which perhaps is not very realistic but was necessary for the plot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it works well for the plot, for sure. But um, it's, yeah, I just thought, I mean, how ridiculous. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it certainly is ridiculous. I think what the reason I like him um, is because, he, I guess, alongside that, he's so 
kind-hearted and well-intentioned. I just, I don't know, I just find people getting confused, amusing, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas I'm just irritated by people being confused. Um, I have no patience for such things. I'm such a great teacher. Um, So it's, yeah, it's, it's, no, it didn't, I could, the thing is, while I was reading it, I thought to myself, I could see how this would work really well as a play. Mm-hmm. And and how it would work that whole kind of almost slapstick um, comedy of the ridiculousness of him coming on and and you know I I thought yeah that would work really well on stage but as a novel I felt it was a bit too thin a premise to spin out. Yeah, it is odd that, um, why this is the one of his no- of his plays that he decided to novelise. I don't know why. I don't know if he talks about. I can't remember him talking about that in his autobiography or anything um, because. He wrote an awful lot of plays. Some of the, this was one of his more successful ones, but The Dover Road was his most successful one. And that's a um, great play. Yeah, which we loved. Uh, potentially, actually, was might have come after this novel was written or anything. But, um, yes, it is interesting that he decided that there was enough there, when, and perhaps not everyone would agree with that. Um, I read the play first, so if I've not seen it, I have read it. So I guess I had that in mind when I was reading this. Is the play very different to the novel? No, so the only real difference is that it's you know, you know obviously a lot less of it, and so and we don't get all the um, introspection, I guess, or the narrative looking at the different characters. Mm-hmm. He does actually um, one of the things I really like about reading his plays is he often does quite de- detailed, funny, and um, yeah, really analytical stage directions, which obviously the audience don't see, but the reader can see, um, and so. It's not as far apart as you might imagine, um, but no. In terms of the the, the the events that happen, it's as far as I can recall, exactly the same. Okay. Um, and he wrote in his autobiography that the the genesis of the play, and I don't know if this is disingenuous or not, but um, he he said I, I saw this woman who wanted to hang very modern curtains, and her husband didn't want her to, and I felt that the gods were saying that woman will hang her curtains, and that is what <laughs> started the play. <laughs> Maybe. Well, interesting that that's the thing that uh, he he fixed on. But okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's an enjoyable book. It's good fun. It's nice for you know if you just want a really light read and to completely divorce your brain from your reading experience. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't. It certainly wasn't a book that I thought. Oh yeah, I really. I'd, I'd read that again, or I really mm. connected with those characters because I was just the whole time thinking this is absurd. Yes. <laughs> Whereas the yeah the plot in Four Days Wonder, um, I mean in some ways also fairly silly, but but I think it is a little more nuanced perhaps, and yeah. obviously doesn't have to follow all taking place in the same house, <laughs> which an adaptation no. of the play does. <laughs> and I one of the things I, I say I really enjoyed Derek and Jenny's. Mm. friendship slash relationship um but i also loved his the him and the archibald as the brother as brothers so this very like stuffy self-important novelist and this younger brother who um he is a painter but not particularly successful one um and he is clearly envious of his brother's reputation but this comes out in him just not jovially mocking him all the time and obviously yeah. no no one is a hero to their brother in that sense no yeah no one's going to be in awe of their brother so um yes i, I thought he did that very well and that was very yes very amusing 
Yeah, I just think the characters are much more well fleshed out. Their relationships make more sense to each other. Their actions make more sense. Um, and it is genuinely very funny. And I, I agree. I loved the characterization of the brothers, the hatred between them. I think Archibald Fenton is a brilliant character. Uh, he's Emil sends him up so well. Um, and the girls aren't helpless and just there to be in love with people. They're, they're real agents of their That's own yeah. behaviour and they do things, they're clever, they're resourceful, um, they could, they manage very well for themselves and in that way it didn't feel as perhaps, I mean, you know, Patricia Brentish as um, <laughs> the, as I, as I felt Mr. Pimpass's guy was, I just felt like the, the female characters were a bit thin. Yes, definitely in four days wonder if, if there's any anyone who's controlling things it is the women and they're much much more efficient and better at it than sort of slightly hapless policemen yes. particularly um obviously we've said a lot about Derek, but yes archibald is a bit of a fool um the people the, the guardians uh to jenny is not particularly bright um no. uh yeah um i yeah i also really enjoyed the guy's house it was where the, where the death happened and yeah. his attempts to protect his wife from being incriminated which just led to him getting arrested yeah. him. Um, despite the fact that he wasn't there and didn't know anything about it um, yeah it's it's fun I did think it was a particularly successful novel when it was published uh, okay. but, it's, but it is nice that it's been rediscovered particularly when Golden Age detective fiction is also getting a bit of a, a return to Vogue yeah, and I think having read a lot of Golden Age detective fiction, I found it really funny because it does use a lot of the the stereotypes and the traits that, that they use. Um, I, but I don't necessarily think you have to have a knowledge of that to enjoy the book at all. No, I think you're right. I think when I originally read it, although I don't remember a lot about the novel, I think I read it much straighter than it is. I don't think I realised it was a spoof. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I was like, oh yeah, you've written another detective novel, who knew? But, um, but yes, it's not really a detective novel in the sense that the, the reader knows what's happened from the outset and it's just yeah. watching everyone else get, tying themselves in knots. Yes, everyone getting very confused. Um, um, but yeah, no, really, really enjoyed it. Good. Um, well, there is a, yes, more amount to try. <laughs> well, I've got my, my, you know, multi-pack from the book people to, to wade through, so. Oh, yes. I shall look forward. So along with these two, uh, I think I think we're saying there's also Chloe Marr, which is his only other novel. No, he wrote two people as well, actually two people which Capuchin republished a while ago, which is very good. Oh yes, Another that's one, in about my collection. Oh, is that one in there? Yes. Okay. Oh, that is very good. Um, Chloe Marr, which I did not particularly like, but again, don't remember much about, uh, which is about a, an actress. Um, and a book of short stories called The Table Near the Band, which I'm sure is fine, but but I don't remember anything about that either. <laughs> so, this is the thing with Amon being my first sort of adult novelist I read, is that I blitzed through all of them in 2002, 2002 2003 sort of time, and now get to steadily revisit everything. What a joy. Yes. <laughs> so I think it's clear that your decision is Four Days Wonder, am I right? It is, yeah. Yes. Um, as I said to you when we started, I had not decided which one I would pick, um, and I do think that Four Days Wonder is probably the better novel, but I am going to pick Mr. Pim Passes By. Uh, I think just because 
of all the memories I have associated with reading it the first time around and reading the play and discovering this new author I really loved. And I still really loved reading it this time. And I, I agree with the criticisms that we've both said about maybe the thinness of the character and perhaps it not having quite enough to put together a whole novel. But I just love the whole concept, the whole... I love Mr. Pym. I love the idea that's of the, just this little coincidence of someone passing by and saying something sets off all these different things. Um and yeah, I know that I will definitely reread, reread it with with much pleasure at another point, wow. at least another point. I'm glad, and thank you for yeah. introducing me to A and well, Wonderful, thank you for reading them. And and yes, if anyone I knew, I know a few people were planning on reading along at some point. Um, so do let us know what you thought. Yeah, I'd love to hear people's opinion. For sure, great. Um, in the next episode, which. Um, I, each time we're saying we're not quite sure when they'll be because Rachel Law is moving house, you know, holidays and all that sort of thing. Um, but we will be doing two books about women deciding to start bookshops, neither of which are the bookshop by Penelope Fitzgerald because <laughs> you already did that one. <laughs> but they are The Education of Harriet Hatfield by Mason, not Mason Clare, Mason Sarton, um, and Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley, which I think were published about 80 years of hard or 70 years of hard. But both both about that, so it'll be interesting to see how they treat that topic differently. Yes, indeed. Great. Thanks okay. very much for listening, everyone. Thanks, we'll everyone. Next time. See you Bye. soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can visit my blog at stuckinabook.com. You can visit Rachel at booksnob.wordpress.com. You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash tea or books. We're very grateful to those who do. Uh, many thanks to you, particularly... Thank you to Maria, Gracie, Randy, and Elizabeth. And we'll speak to you soon. Bye.